our sovereign Lord can change the most hardened sinners, the vilest men and women, and transform them into kingdom ambassadors. That's the power that our Lord has. And Luke, as the historian and physician that he is, led by the Holy Spirit, is going to introduce us and elevate in our understanding the issue of God's converting power. You've heard the terminology around church called conversion. And we're speaking of the major before and after meeting Christ stories that remind us that no one is outside of the incredible reach of God's saving grace. Today, we begin our study of Acts chapter 9. Please look with me in Acts 7, verse 58. Let's get an introduction to the enemy that God is going to save. The title of the sermon is God Saves an Enemy. And today, we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. Y'all know me well enough to know that it's impossible to preach Saul's conversion. Uh, In one sermon, it's going to take about three to do that. So today, we're going to put our focus upon the enemy himself. What do we know about Saul of Tarsus? So chapter 7, verse 58 is our first introduction to him. 758, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. We know this is Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Now chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest When it wasn't enough to bring the Christians in from Jerusalem, he requests letters from the high priest, which was a normal rule of thumb, to go over as far as Damascus to the synagogue, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He got it right immediately, did he not? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Saul of Tarsus. If you are a Christian in the first century and you heard the name Saul of Tarsus, there's no question that fear would have gripped your heart. When you get down to chapter 9, this radical extremist, Saul, is uh, introduced to Ananias. We'll see that next week. And Ananias' response about dealing with Saul was this, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Can you imagine it's one of those uh, times when God speaks to you, well, in the Scripture, speaking directly in Revelation, 
Ananias-inspired uh, scripture. He speaks to Ananias and tells Ananias what he's supposed to do. And Ananias' response would probably be what my response is. What? You're telling me I'm going to deal with this man? We cannot overestimate this morning the amount of opposition to Christ and the church that Paul or Saul actually had. The Bible says he was breathing out threats and murder. He was the head leader of the opposition against what's called the way. I think that that came from Jesus' own words. I am the, the truth and the life. And later on, when you get on over to Acts chapter 11 you're going to be introduced to the first time they're called Christians. And it will, it will surprise you uh, what's the connotation of the word Christian. Uh, it's not the kind of word then that would get you elected to office today. In our day, you know, everybody's a Christian, right? You get a pat on the back if you claim to be a Christian. Well, that was not the nuance of the word given in Acts chapter 11. But at this particular point, it was called the way... I think by the followers of Christ and also by the ones trying to stop and oppose the way. However, this ringleader who persecuted the church more than any person ever is going to be saved by Jesus Christ and will be the most influential Christian that ever lived. Period. You cannot think of a Christian over the last 2,000 years with as, most, with as much influence in Christendom than the Apostle Paul. His conversion plays a monumental place of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And this morning, I want to spend some time unpacking who he is. Y'all okay with that? You get a lesson, and then we'll see how drastic and dramatic. You know, there's, a term, there's some terminology we put to Paul's uh, salvation. We call it a Damascus Road experience because uh, we meet people that we think were hell-bent and then there's this radical transformation, and we say, well, that was the Damascus Road experience. Well, I don't know if you can even say that uh, with anybody compared to, to Saul because of his lifestyle against the church. But here's the first thing I want you to note. He was a citizen of Tarsus. Write that down. It's on the projector, but he was a citizen of Tarsus. Remember, anytime you come into the auditorium on Sunday morning and sometime on Sunday night, you can find some notes I think to your left, is that right, Brother David, coming in? And you can pick up a sheet and bring it into the auditorium and have the notes of what you see, and you can write on them. A little bit of ink is better than the best memory, right? He was a citizen of Tarsus. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 21, and I want to begin reading in verse 39. Paul is speaking to people. He uh, is already, he, of course, he's been preaching for quite a while at this point. And here's what Paul says, trying to gain an audience and for them to listen to what he had to say. 2139, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now remember, God knew what he was doing when he saved Paul. Because of his lineage... Because of his heritage, he knew that Paul would be able to take the gospel where most men would not be able to take the gospel. And that's another part of the sermon. But here he highlights the prestigious nature, the prestigious nationality of being of Cilicia, but more importantly, Tarsus. 
Cilicia was famous for a certain product. It was famous for goat hair tents, which will remind you that Paul was a tent maker. So it was a very wealthy area along the Mediterranean, and it's Paul's emphasis on Tarsus of Cilicia that should get our attention. It was the largest city in the region of Cilicia. It was a very famous city in Paul's day. It was also a very famous philosophical city. You may not know this, but it actually superseded Athens, Greece in the area of philosophy. So we're talking about a prestigious place. Very advanced in the liberal arts and learning. In its day, Tarsus would, or, uh, would have been, in a sense, a university town. That was the way you would have thought of it in our modern-day vernacular. So to say that Saul was from Tarsus was to say that he was from a very, very special place. There is uh, also something important here. In order to be a citizen, there was another qualification. You had to own property. So here's a man who owned a substantial amount of property in Tarsus in order for him to be able to say, I'm a citizen of Tarsus. Perhaps it was uh, inherited, but most people believe that this particular man, Saul of Tarsus, was a, came from a very well-to-do family. He was a citizen of Tarsus. Secondly, he was a Roman citizen. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you realize that Paul will use that Roman citizenship card on several occasions. Let me give you one example. Chapter 22 uh, beginning in verse 25. Now, you're in the same book I'm in, so you should be able to flip to that, right? 22, chapter 22, beginning in verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by. Now, get the picture. He stretched out. They're getting ready to whip him. Uh, and then he says to the centurion who's standing by, By the way, dude, is it lawful? That's not exactly. I put that in there, right? Can you just see him kind of nonchalantly like, you know, bring the whips on. I mean, this, this guy had been beaten 39 times, save one, 40 use of mint death, five times. And here he is. He looks over and says, is it lawful? Maybe at this particular time he just really didn't feel like he wanted to be whipped, right? But then he says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? You could read on. But there he uses that Roman citizenship card. Every Roman citizen had three names. They would have a forename, a family name, and then an additional given name. Well, his forename was Saul. His parents would have given this name at birth. Now, when I read about Saul the king, I'm thinking, whoop, don't want to name my kid Saul. Right? But they didn't care about his shortcomings. They just knew he was the first king of Israel. And so they named him Saul. It's hard for Jews to see any flaws in their heroes. What was really important to them was that, again, he was the first king. We don't know Saul's family name. We do, however, know his given name. And his given name is Paulos. Now, don't think about Paul, which is given to him at his conversion, but the word polos actually means small. The extra-biblical accounts that we have provide a description of Paul that proves he was actually very small in stature. He, the typical account was that he was short, bald, and bow-legged. Wow. So he was called something like shorty. In all of Paul's literature, 
He never refers to himself as Saul. He always refers to himself by his given name. So, as a Roman citizen, he had incredible privilege, privileges. He was considered a part of the social elite. You remember that Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion because they thought that was the most ignoble form of death, and they were also exempt from physical punishment. That was only reserved for those of the lower class. So he grew up in a privileged, well-to-do home. He grew up socially elite. So he had a great clout as a Roman citizen, and he had great prestige as a citizen of Tarsus. But neither one of those two things were the most important. Tarsus, Roman citizen, here's the third one. He was a Hebrew. The most important thing was he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Acts 22.3 says this, but Philippians is Paul's autobiography. Awesome text of Scripture. Listen to it. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Of course, we're going to run on down in a few moments and talk about the righteousness there. But here's his autobiographical section. And what does he highlight? He is a Hebrew. What brought him most soul pride was not Tarsus. It was not Roman citizenry. But it was the fact that he was a Hebrew. When you use the term Hebrew, you're talking about a specialized Jew. Not just the average run-of-the-mill. Why? Because Hebrew has to do with a deep religious and cultural commitment. There were all kinds of Jews living in this area with, that were in each area that we're dealing with here. But the fact of the matter is, Hebrew was a distinguishing mark for Saul. To claim to be a Hebrew was about religious and cultural commitments. It's Paul's, in Paul's time, very few Jews could speak Hebrew. As a matter of fact, probably in his home, they spoke Aramaic. But the Hebrew language is seen to be truer, or Aramaic is seen to be truer, seen to be truer to the mother language, which is Hebrew, than Greek would be, of course. His hometown of Tarsus is Tarsus, and what about it? It is not a Jewish city. So, in the midst of this pagan culture, a city that is not a Jewish city, here's a group of people, his family, who lived there and were set apart, and not only were they he they're Jews, but they spoke the Hebrew language, and everything they did was about the Hebrew religion and culture. In Acts 22, he says that he was raised in Jerusalem as a boy. Y'all know what that would mean, don't you? It means his mom and dad are residing in Tarsus, but they send their lad over to Jerusalem to be raised in the Hebrew culture. Isn't that phenomenal? By the way, uh, do you ever worry about the influences upon your children? Yeah, we worry about those influences, don't we? Raising kids in our world is hard. In chapter 5, we met a chief Pharisee named Gamaliel. Do you remember him? 
Well, it was Gamaliel that actually raised Paul in the Hebrew culture. So we have Paul, a man that was really brought up in two worlds. He would have been fluent in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Can you imagine that? We wonder how he could write such incredible theology once God shifted his mind away from the things of the world and the things of the Lord. And if you notice in Acts, because of the reference to certain people, that he was extremely familiar with Greek philosophy. He was profoundly intelligent, raised in two different worlds at the same time. So, Tarsus, Rome, Hebrew of Hebrews. But what was he religiously? Well, he was a Pharisee, right? As you read in the autobiography, he was a Pharisee. So that means he was brought up in the strictest traditions of his sect, right? The Hebrews would have accepted the Old Testament, and they would have accepted all of their rites and rituals interpreted out of the Pentateuch and the entire Old Testament. Acts 26, when you get there, Paul will use his Pharisaic background as he's standing before Pharisees and Sadducees. Now remember, the Pharisees were the conservatives of the day, and the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they were liberal. Those guys didn't believe anything. No afterlife, no resurrection. Paul will start a riot in Acts chapter 26 because he will pit the Pharisees against the Sadducees. Because Paul says, I'm on trial for the resurrection. And the Sadducees are thinking, that's not even possible because there's no resurrection. And the Pharisees are thinking, yeah, there is a resurrection. So it causes a riot. These guys, again, strict in ceremonial law, moral purity. You can look at page after page after page in the Mishnah and other places of the observance of ceremonial rites and rituals. You can look at page after page after page about how to wash your hands, to get in every crack and every crevice of your hands, how to wash and be ceremonially clean. You can read page after page about what it meant to observe the Sabbath. Now, deep down in their heart, they didn't really honor God on the Sabbath, did they? They honored their rites and rituals written around honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. They were very much like the Roman Catholic Church. They winked at the Scripture, the Old Testament, but they kept their traditions more than they kept the Word. They were more in tune with their traditions and interpretation of what the Old Testament said than listening to the Word. They they were more in tune with the oral, oral tradition passed down through elders and rabbinic teaching. That's how they interpreted the Old Testament. Paul will say this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. So this ancestral tradition, the interpretation of the law, those were the important things in Saul's life, religiously. It's interesting to note, again, that Paul didn't follow too close the advice of his teacher, right? What did Gamaliel tell Paul, tell Saul, and all of them? Let's just wait and see how this thing pans out. Of course, we talked about the fact that in Gamaliel's advice, there was faulty teaching. We talked about that. But he reminded, he said to them, you know, don't raise a sword. That's not the way to go after this. Just wait. And if it's of God, uh, it'll work out. But what we learned is if it's of God, you better join in. Just don't let it go. He was zealot. His zeal from his persecution of the church arose out of the fact that he believed that you could be right with God through all these rituals and, and acts and ceremonial cleaning, cleansings and all this. 
That's what's in his mind. He was a religious zealot. He had unbounded zeal. He could have looked at the story of Phineas in the Old Testament with all that zeal and God honored him and said, I'm going to be like Phineas. Now the way is here. I see this way. It doesn't line up with what we've been taught through tradition. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to destroy the way. Now he had zeal, but zealous people are absolutely dangerous if they're zealous for the wrong things. Right? You're living in a world today where there's religious zeal. They're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. They're zealous, but they're dangerous. We have a world like this of religiosity, but there's zeal without knowledge. There's blind, murderous zeal in our world, and it's contrary to the zeal that we ought to have for the living God. When you think of a radical Islamist, you could equally put Saul of Tarsus with that kind of evil zeal. It was a zeal propelled by murder. Saul looked at the way, and he saw there was no absolute way for this to be in line with what he was taught. He saw this as blasphemy before the God of Israel. Because of his misplaced zeal, he was propelled to be a persecutor of the church of the living God. Now, I wrestled with this, and I thought to myself, why was it that Paul looked at Christianity so blasphemously? Why was it that it looked so blasphemous to him? Well, folks, the, the root is a crucified Messiah was a total contradiction of terms to him. When he looked at it, a crucified Messiah, with all of his training and rituals that he performed, he could not put that together with a crucified Messiah. As far as he was concerned, that's trying to put a square peg in a round hole. just would not work. He felt there was no way that Israel's Messiah, we, we're having a king coming to sit on the seat of David. Not a suffering servant. There's no way he could see that. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 tells us that everyone who is hanged upon a tree is cursed. Don't you think Saul knew that verse? Everyone who is hanged upon a tree is cursed. Are you telling me that our Messiah is cursed? So with all of Paul's zeal, religious training, cultural upbringing, he looked at the church as a malignant growth. That he had to get out of the way. He had to radically extract this growth. So he saw everyone of the way as blasphemous people. And under the law, they deserve to die. So he'd make sure that they all paid the ultimate price. Thus in chapter 9, he is getting letters. So that he could go home to home. And so he could drag out men and women. You know what that means? The children were left behind. Ruthless nature of who he was later on it was Paul himself who would say that I'm the one that was guilty of blasphemy not the people of God 1 Timothy 1 13 we could only imagine as you read texts of scripture like Acts 22 4 and Acts 26 9 through 11 you could just imagine what Paul said about Christ just imagine what went through his mind about them imposters who are not doing it the Jewish way but are imposters following around a fool. That's what he thought in his mind. He was filled with hatred, committed to violence, on a crusade to destroy all of those who would follow this trumped-up Messiah from Nazareth. Is it any reason why Paul would say to his young protege Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, I was the chief of sinners. 
after he understood who Christ is. So these are the very things that he saw against Christ and saw against the followers. There was something else going on inside of his heart as he went about his business. And I would say that's something found in Romans. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this war going on in Saul's life. Chapter 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Some of you are in this boat tonight, today. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I, once, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Once the law, perfect law of God, turns its focus upon your sin, you die. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. All oh, folks, was he not deceived? And all of his wanderings and everything he was trying to do to stamp out the way and be against Christ, kicking against the goads, as Christ would say later, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. Amen? And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So I think this was going on in his life. He had this blind zeal. This is true of Catholicism. Did y'all know that? The more failure one feels, the more earnest we become in defending a works-based salvation. That you got to touch this base. you got to touch second base and third base and home base and whatever other base there is so that we can be made right with God. Martin Luther, we're coming up on 500 years since the time of the Reformation. That's good stuff. Don't think for a moment on the 29th that I won't be preaching on that, right? How can God be both just and the justifier of men? That's what Luther saw when he read all the Catholic dogma and he nailed that 95 Theses there. What, what was wrong? Can't be saved by works. And so it is. In the Catholicism, you, you start to be zealous in defending those works. Just like Paul was, I think the more zeal he had against the church was really covering up his conscience. Because he couldn't be made right with God through those things. You can be an altar boy and you can say the rosary a million times, but, if you, but deep down you know your sense of failure. And here's a man, Paul, who has this nagging conscience. And Saul's conversion is one of the greatest testimonies to the truthfulness of the Christian faith that you will ever see. We're talking about a man who was breathing out murderous threats that was supernaturally grabbed by God and thrown on his back. Isn't that incredible? God did this. You do know that Saul wasn't up that morning as he was asking for the letters and starting out on Damascus Road, thinking, hmm, maybe Jesus is going to meet me today. No, folks. That's the last thing that could have ever been. The Bible says no one seeks after God. No one. You're never going to seek until He gives you eyes to see. And it was the Lord God Almighty that brought this to Him. The, the grace of God, other than the cross and the empty tomb and your conversion, I would say to you, Paul's conversion is the most important event in all of Christianity. Now, put your conversion in there because that's up there, right? It has to be. Saul of Tarsus reminds us that no one is outside of the reach and grace of God. Look, folks, Saul was not just a bad man. He was the worst of sinners. Killing Christians. 
totally against Christ. If God can save Saul of Tarsus, He can save you. If God can save Saul of Tarsus, He can save anyone. Now I want to ask you a question. What matters most in your life? You know, there are some things that we think in America that count. We're even prone to think that some of those things are going to count before God. Because we're Americans. We've got American blood coursing through our veins. We, we're, we're white. We're, I mean, surely, if anybody ever had monopoly on God, it's us, right? Does that really count? Five milliseconds after you're dead and your eyes are closed, is that going to matter one bit? There's some things in life that don't count at all. There's only one thing that counts, and that's this. You've got to have the righteousness of Christ. You've got to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And in his autobiography, here's what he says to you. Uh, religion, circumcised on the eighth day. You know what that means? I've been in church my whole life. Now, he was going to the synagogue in an American vernacular. I came to church before I was born out of my mom's womb. Right, mama? My mom took me to church. I didn't have a choice, right? That's what Saul is saying. Religion, eighth day. I got the religion thing down pat. In our vernacular, I went to church when I was a baby. Religion doesn't matter. Religion will not save you. I've told you, you can be baptized so many times to tadpoles, know your social security number. But that will not qualify you for heaven. It won't, folks. Religion doesn't matter. Paul had all of this religion. Remember, if anybody could boast in the flesh, Paul says it was me. Religion, I had it down. How about heritage? I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Hey, when it comes to... I done blown this thing up, right? The rapture's taking place. Don't be left behind. I'm going to preach through Daniel, and we'll learn about that, right? Paul said, religion doesn't matter. Heritage doesn't matter. I'm, a, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a prestigious tribe, American-born white guy. Prestigious tribe. And this is going to really shock you. Morality doesn't matter. I was blameless, according to what my people said of the law. I was blameless. You know, folks... Only the sick need a physician. Didn't Jesus say something about that? Paul was zealous and blameless according to the law. Paul seemed to have everything on the credit side. When he looked at his life, I've got everything on the credit side. But in reality, he had everything on the debit side. And when he looked at Jesus, he understood he had everything on the debit side. Right? And he really owed it all. He really had a lot of debits. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can stand in the credit column. Period. Paul's going to say this. Check this out. Chapter 3, verse 7 of Philippians. But whatever I gain, but whatever gain I had, religion, heritage, morality. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For His sake... I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness 
from God that depends on faith. Let me tell you something, folks. You can't be saved by religion, heritage, or morality. You've got to have the righteousness of Jesus given to your credit. No one will ever go to heaven unless they go with the righteousness of Jesus. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't beg. You can't barter. There's no way to the Father unless you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you. Are you there? What really counts? Righteousness alone counts. Christ alone, for righteousness' sake alone. Why? Because He lived the law perfectly. Never one time sinned took that perfect body to the tree of Calvary that never sinned and died on your behalf in your stead to fulfill the law's demands in order for you to meet that law demand and become your substitute. Substitutionary, sacrificial atonement died in your stead and on your behalf so that you did fulfill the law in Jesus. How is the law fulfilled? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you're not standing in that, you know the old song, you know I love the hymns, On Christ the Solid Rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I love this verse. When he shall come with... My voice is hurting, so I'm not singing. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Here it is. Dressed in his righteousness alone and faultless to stand before his throne. When you close your... Five milliseconds after you shut your eyes, righteousness is the only thing that's going to matter. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, uh, Lord, it's your righteousness and your righteousness alone that saves. And Lord, I'm just burdened today because I just feel like so often we just drift through church life. And we got religion down, we've got heritage down, we've got morality down, but we don't have Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning... God, I'm not asking you to do a Damascus Road experience. But Lord, the way I look at my own life, Lord, I'm in that vilest of sinners category. Lord, I know what it means. Uh, maybe you can, be, uh, you can grow up in church your whole life, but once you know grace, uh, Lord, once you give us what we did not deserve, once you help us see through the eyes of grace, God, our whole world changes. That's why conversion is so awesome. When we meet you, we're never the same. God in America, so often, we just don't see that kind of change. There's just kind of a bump in the road, and maybe we put another God on our shelf to help us get through life, but God, where's the radical commitment to the radical nature of salvation? Conversion means to be one way, one moment, and to be going a totally different way the next. God, I thank you that, that you changed lives, that you changed my life. And Lord, I know as long as there's still breath, you can save any sinner anywhere. God, I ask you to do that today, if it would please you. And for Christians, Lord, Paul is going to be zealous for the things of Christ. Once he gets this most valuable treasure and he's satisfied in you, he's never going to be the same. He's a brand new Christian and you can't shut his mouth. He's preaching Jesus to everyone he comes in contact with. Lord, I pray that we would have that kind of zeal. God, speak to our hearts through your word in our time of invitation. No one ever comes to you
unless your word does it, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by your word. God, would you open hearts? Lord, there's some things I cannot do. I cannot affect change in anyone's life. Only you can. God, would you do it today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.